You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Spirit, we ask that you would do two things, that you would show us our need for Jesus and that you would give him to us. Amen. Well, today's psalm, Psalm 139, it presses us to talk about something that no doubt will make us squirm, intimacy with God. In some sectors of Christianity, maybe ours, intimacy at least when it comes to our relationship with God, it's a little bit of a four-letter word. God doesn't really exist to be intimate with. He exists to be reverenced. God exists to be honored. God exists to be glorified and obeyed. And yet, Psalm 139, it begs to differ. The psalmist exclaims with a kind of bubbling relish of a newlywed spouse, God, you know everything about me. You know when I wake up and when I go to sleep. You know what I'm going to say before I say it. And God, you're everywhere around me. No matter where I go, you're there. You're in front of me and behind me. And God, you were there at the moment when I was conceived. You multiplied the cells that would form my heart and my lungs and my brain and my eyes and my arms. And I swear to you, if If you were to be able to read this psalm in Hebrew, perhaps some of you do, even if you didn't understand a word and you just heard it read, just its meter, just its cadence, it would sound like a lilting waltz between two swooning lovers. It even makes sense of this sort of sore thumb part of the psalm, where we feel like it's shifting gears, but uh, when it says that, God, I hate those who, who hate you. Oh, God, that you would slay your enemies. I mean, did you hear it and feel like, gosh, things changed there? But it doesn't really change if you get that in a relationship that intimate, you start to love the things that the object of your affection loves. You start to hate the things that the object of your affection hates. So Psalm 139, it presents a picture of what a real relationship with God looks like for every last Christian. And for every last human being, in fact, and boy, is it ever intimate. If we're willing to grant this, then we understand why it's a perfect text for our season of Epiphany. Because Epiphany means revealing. And particularly, it celebrates the meaning of Advent and Christmas by lingering over one major implication of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That God has actually been revealed to us. He's drawn near to us in a way where we can reach out and touch him. The epiphany is God's great apologetic defense that he intends to get as intimate with us as Psalm 139 boasts. The end game of the incarnation is so that God might restore the deep closeness with him that we've severed and that we've lost. You know, my intern Annie and I were sitting down for coffee this week with someone new to our church. This person was recounting to us a conversation that she had with her younger brother, who's far from the Lord. He grew up in and around the church, but doesn't find much room for that in his life anymore. 
The sister engaged him recently in a conversation about all that, and his very understandable response was basically, well, I believe God's out there, but of course, he's going to be focused on kind of all that big stuff. He described a God who is involved with the large-scale problems of humanity and the globe, working and active, but distant from the individual. In this understanding, God's work still impacts our lives, but in a residual kind of way. We might liken our relationship with God in this scheme to, say, our relationship with our state senator or congresswoman. I don't know her personally, but she votes on policies that end up affecting my taxes and my livelihood, my finances. You know, many of us think that God's like that. He's moving. He's working. And his impact really does make a difference in my life. But the impact on my life is kind of downstream. He shifts tectonic plates and global forces. And I feel the result of those things concretely, but indirectly by like seven or eight degrees. For those who think this way about God, the claim is often made, God is too big to be involved in any meaningful personal way in my little life. But do you realize that to hold this view is actually to make God smaller? See, we make God small, like us. If he's able to multitask, it's not with very many tasks. You know, we can only multitask up to about three to five things. And so God is, he's, he's busy tasking all the really big issues of the globe and doesn't have time, attention, or bandwidth for little old me. And Psalm 139 says, your God is too small. You see, God's infinitude means that he has an infinite capacity to multitask without losing any ability to attend completely and fully to whatever he's attending to. Unlike us, God can't be spread too thin. God can't be juggling too many balls. God doesn't need to practice being fully present with people. God can't be hashtag crazy busy. Psalm 139 claims that God's intimate acquaintance with you, even to the point of saying that he's the one who got his hands calloused in the hard work of multiplying your cells and forming your body parts in your mother's womb. God's care for you, his concern for you, involvement with you is that deep and that intimate. So if God's involvement in your life is that intimate, why does my relationship with God not feel that way? Well, like any other relationship, it must be cultivated. Relationships require time and meaningful conversation, experiencing significant events together. Perhaps most of us in this room might be able to say that God is my God, or my master, or my Lord, or my protector, my sovereign. But how many of us can say that he's my friend? Or even more provocatively, but nevertheless biblical, he's my lover. Woo, Zach, you're getting a little crazy. I don't know about that one. And yet, Jesus calls himself our bridegroom. And when God refers to our sin, in the Old Testament especially, he's prone to use the word adultery. So if you've got a problem with all this intimacy with God stuff, please don't shoot the messenger. So what are the practices that cultivate this kind of deep relation, relationship and connection with God and, and therefore with others? 
Well, it's not rocket science. It's not a magic formula or a new idea. It's what the psalmist describes at the very end in verse 24. He says, lead me in the way everlasting. You know, another very viable rendering of this original language here is in line with the prophet Jeremiah. Lead me in the ancient paths. These ancient paths, these well-worn grooves in the dirt, are actually all over the Psalms, trod by the people of God for generations, which open up deep relational connection. There are these four things, principally. Prayer, Bible reading and meditation, participating with all that you are in public worship, and significant and regular interactions with other people who know the Lord. But that's just really a pastoral value add. That's not what I'm really here today to preach. You know, J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, makes a wonderful distinction in the opening uh, pages of the book. He distinguishes between knowing about God and knowing God. He says, knowing about God is holding facts in your mind about who he is, getting to know him and assimilating a a stack of of ideas that you just keep right here. But knowing God is decidedly relational. It's very different. It's kind of that moment when knowing about God spills over from head to heart. I mean, I could know 10,000 things about my spouse, the color of her hair and her eyes and her manner of speaking. But it's very different to know about her than it is to know her. How many of you, without even knowing it, have settled for knowing about God? Maybe you realize right now that you've been sitting on the fence, content with the religiosity that holds God at the distance of knowing about him. Maybe for you, knowing about God is relegated to holding him at arm's length with your intellectual and scientific doubts. Or holding him at arm's length because it's comfortable to simply check off the church box and be seen by a few of your friends in Birmingham each week. Or holding him at arm's length because, well, religion's really a crutch for weak people who don't know how otherwise to be strong. Or holding him at arm's length because while your spouse or your friend who brings you here might be devout and believing all this stuff, you're really just along for the ride and maybe don't even buy it or don't even really deep down see the need for it. Or holding him at arm's length because you're consumed by what really drives you, what really energizes you, your work or your team, your money or your recreation. For all who hold God at arm's length, how's that working for you? Maybe you can, for a moment, suspend your judgment and put down your defenses that you're putting up right now and be honest with yourself. How's that working for you? Because Psalm 139 is clear today. This arm's length knowing about God is really no knowing at all. Even more, this kind of not knowing is diabolically deceptive and harmful to you because you actually think you do know him or at least know him well enough to be content with the extent of your investment. If any of this describes you, Let Psalm 139 be a haunting oracle to you today. Even if you don't know God, God knows you. God sees you. 
God has your number. He's not fooled. You haven't evaded his eye. He knows you inside and out. He knows what's going to come out of your mouth. All the anxious thoughts that keep you up at night and wake you up in the morning. He knows what drives you and what motivates you. The Bible tells us that we have a God who takes personal and individual notice of every last human being on this planet. And that means you. Some of us think, again, that God's got bigger fish to fry. Global politics, national injustice, world hunger. Wrong. Psalm 139 tells us God fries every fish. God is not content to sovereignly orchestrate the big movements of the world. His providential involvement is meticulous. And his perspective isn't only cosmic. It's microscopic. God is after you. And the hound of heaven will not rest until he has you cornered. He loves you too much merely to be concerned with global politics. How's that for scary? Who in their right mind would want a relationship with a God like that? You know, have you ever thought about this? All the other relationships that we have with other humans, they work precisely because they don't know everything about us. Yes, I'm even talking about best friends and parents and spouses, because if they did know everything about us, they would go running for the hills. If they knew our true thoughts and our true motivations and our true desires, chances are that even our most intimate relationships would dissolve in a second. Deep intimacy isn't sustainable because our real darkness is too dark And our real brokenness is too broken. All of our lives are built on the foundation that we must hide certain parts of ourselves to sustain and maintain certain relationships with our boss or with our fellow students or with our friends or with our minister or with our spouse or with our children or with our parents. Punchline, if that kind of hiding is our social currency, Why would I ever pursue a relationship with God from whom I can't hide and who knows every bit of me? Henry Van Dyke answers this question in a marvelously compact phrase. And it's where the intimacy of Psalm 139, it drives to its ultimate end in its larger kind of biblical context. Van Dyke says, the heart's eternal thirst is to be completely known and all forgiven. For too long, we Christians have given the impression to the watching world that to be a Christian means to be a behaviorally perfect person, or at least to be a person whose good works and kindness and moral uprightness strongly outweigh the bad stuff. But the fact of the matter is, this is not the hallmark of Christianity. Other religions can make you a good person too. The Bible says clearly and emphatically over and over again, there is not one good person out there, not one. The Christian, therefore, is not someone who has it all together, but rather someone who is known by God, who gives up the charade and falls back into the arms of God's grace by saying, I am known, and yet in Christ I'm loved I'm cherished and forgiven. The power of an intimate relationship with God is manifested in the fact 
that intimacy with God is ultimately based on God's pursuit of us, not our pursuit of God. You know, some of you feel like you've jeopardized all future hope of any kind of real intimacy with God. You've sinned too greatly, or you've been running from God for so long that there's no hope. You think that God is like your former friend or estranged relative who, after a long absence of a severe rupture in the relationship, has distanced themselves forever to write you off. God's word says today, you can't outsin the gracious pursuit of God. You can't rebel so greatly and run so swiftly that God in his mercy won't find you. Just a few weeks ago, I was in a situation where I knew I would be in close proximity to someone from my past. He's someone I felt a lot of bitterness towards because of the way he's wronged me and wronged people that I've loved. I remember the hours before I knew that I would see him, all the old feelings of antagonism, they were welling up within me, and I eventually had to stop and pray, God, forgive me. Help me to let go of this. Help me to forgive him and to genuinely love this man so that I don't have to fake it and pretend. Do you have someone in your life like that? Someone who's simply unlovable. Think of that worst relationship, if you dare, right now. Now with that thought and with that feeling in mind, Hear what God told me in that moment and what he's telling you right now. That unlovable one, that unforgivable one, that one that you have every right to feel hurt, bitter towards, that one who cut you deeply. That's you. You are the one, God says. You have cut me deeply. I have loved you deeply. I gave my best to you. I reached out time and again. And you have hurt me. You have done things against me, unspeakable things that have grieved my heart. And yet, God says, I am the God who loves the unlovable. I require no loveliness on the part of the object of my affection. I love you simply because I choose to. I love you anyway. Once we realize this, we have a whole new angle on the depths of love that are present in this psalm. What is the cost of that kind of love and intimacy that Psalm 139 describes? It's the cost of a father's only begotten son. The payment of greatest price. All because he loves you. Anyway. So, search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in us. And lead us in the way everlasting. Only through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. 
If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.